Grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21. Now I'm just going to warn you, we're going to struggle with this text. So I hope you're not in a hurry. Um, But this is a difficult text. This is probably a text that you have never heard read or studied in church. Okay? And I'm grateful that uh, I've had a little extra time to meditate upon this passage. I don't have it all figured out, uh, but maybe together... Uh, Through this passage, we can find Christ in it, okay? Page uh, um, 294 in your pew Bibles, if you will, stand with me. Reverence for God's Word, we want to read the first 14 verses. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord Gebeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. The king said, I will give them. And the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Ritzbah, the daughter of Ai, who she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Ritzpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Ritzpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day of the Philistines' king Saul of Geboah. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Let's go Lord in prayer. Our Father, this is, this, this is a difficult, difficult text, particularly to modern 21st century Western ears. But may we, at the end of the day, as we wrestle with this, find Christ. See Christ risen from the dead. So Lord, we ask you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, our entire being, that we will be transformed by Christ for your kingdom and for your glory. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Be seated. Growing up, uh, the preaching I grew up under was a steady diet of topical preaching. There's nothing necessarily wrong with topical preaching. We've done some here. And that is where each week, and maybe you grew up with this, each week was, was, was a, a different text 
with a different subject. This week we may talk about forgiveness. Next week we may talk about love. And the week after that we may talk about prayer. We prefer here for the most part, although we'll do some topical, more expository approach. That is, we find ourselves in a book or a text and we don't want to leave until we discover all that God has to tell us through that author. And what that does is it forces us to address passages in the Bible that we otherwise would ignore. Chances are you have never read this story. Even if you have read through the whole Bible a thousand times, chances are our reading of it as a corporate community today, you're thinking that was never in the Bible before, right? I even myself, whenever we started this series through David, and each year we've picked it back up. I've read back through the story, and, and I know where the story goes, have a general idea. Uh, two weeks ago, and I sat down to, to, to anticipate the next message, I thought, I've never read that before. Knowing that I've read the Bible multiple times, I've read 2 Samuel multiple times. This is a difficult text, I think, to, to say the least. What in the world do we do with this? And the goal for us is, 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 as we've already said multiple times, is when we wrestle with difficult texts, we will in the end find a glorious Christ who reigns over us and over it. And that is what, what it is that we want to do. Now, let's get a little bit of background here. Uh, the story of David, to, to put it simply, it starts with the triumph of David. That's much of 1 Samuel, right? So this is where David starts at the shepherd boy. He becomes king. So our study of 1 Samuel was David, the shepherd who would become a king. Our study of 2 Samuel is not the triumph of David, but really the tragedy of David, particularly after the Bathsheba event. And so, and so what we see then is a king who needs to be remembered. He's really still a shepherd. And that's been our study so far. But that narrative ended at the end of chapter 20. And what you have starting in chapter 21, going to the end of 2 Samuel, is the writer tells us the story of David, not chronologically, but thematically. So we pick up here not with the end of the succession, right, that we read last time, or the Civil War that we read before that, but rather we're actually going to go back in time. And so, so don't read the next few chapters looking for chronology. It's not, it's not designed for that. But rather, I think we'll see some themes and see how the passages all fit together. Now, for the sake of simplicity, there are two things we need to see in this text. Two things. Number one, sin is great. And secondly, grace is greater. Okay, so let me just spoil the ending for you. That's where we're going. Sin is great. Grace is greater. Okay? So let's start there that the, the, uh, when we speak of the greatness of sin, that sin is great. Of course, by great, we don't mean fantastic. What we mean is the load, and it is over, overbearing. In verse 1, we see that there is a famine in Israel. Now, famines were serious uh, uh, issues and common in the ancient Near Eastern culture. This is an agricultural society. Uh, where uh, if, if, if the harvest isn't good, you don't eat, right? There aren't really any other options. When I was a pastor in Breckenridge County, we had several farming families in our church. And one family in particular had farmed the whole life. They're the, they're the children of farmers. who's the children of farmers. And they've been farming that, on that farm for generations. And, and the wife uh, complained, or not really complained, but shared with me that it was a bad year. And it was a bad year because we had a drought. I remember one time in Breckenridge County, we had a very, very serious drought. Uh, we have the lake there in Breckenridge and Grayson County. They had to shut that completely down. There wasn't enough water for boats and fishing and everything else. Had to shut that down. The next year was a flood. Had to shut it down again, right? So two years affected our local economy with tourism and whatnot. Well, this year was the drought year, and it was really, really bad. 
And, and she said, one of the things I've learned in all my years of farming is you never recover from a bad harvest. You never recover from a bad harvest. I think there's some real truth to that. Now imagine three straight years of famine. Now, we know this is serious because this is roughly half of what Joseph went through. Remember, Joseph's famine in Egypt was seven years, and it affected the entire uh, Fertile Crescent, the so-called Fertile Crescent, we, we could call in this context. And you remember, that created a refugee crisis, people flocking to Egypt just to have a meal or two. And so when there was famine in ancient Near Eastern culture, there would be violence and warfare. Why? Because if I don't have food, but my neighbor has some, if I go and get rid of them, I can have their food and I can feed my family. So this is a very serious issue, and it would have been David's responsibility to solve the problem. And so what does he do? He, he, in his search for answers, he seeks the Lord. This is good David, right? Remember, this isn't chronology. This isn't bad David we've been looking at. This is good David. I like this, David. So he is seeking the Lord. And God tells him the source of the problem. You are under judgment because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. He came in and he tried to kill them all. So, so Saul here is guilty of ethnic cleansing, of genocide. And, and God says, Israel is under judgment until that sin is addressed. So we should ask ourselves then, who are the Gibeonites? We've met the Gibeonites. It's, it's, it's been a while, so they, they've come up. But the Gibeonites, are we're really first introduced to them in the book of Joshua. Remember, Joshua is the story of how the Israelites, following uh, Moses' leadership, uh, conquer the promised land and dispense uh, or disperse there in the promised land by the various tribes. And you know the story, right? Jericho and Ai and all that sort of stuff. Well, eventually what, what you get in the story of Joshua is a bunch of these smaller city-states reckon that if we all, uh, uh, by our powers combined, right, Captain Planet fans, by our powers combined, we can fight off uh, the Israelites. If you don't like Captain Planet, it's like the Avengers, right, Justice League. If you don't like Avengers and Justice League, it's like the Power Rangers. If you don't like the Power Rangers, it's like Voltron. If you don't like Voltron, then... then how do you have friends and family, right? I mean, come on. I'm giving you gold here, people. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, Jesus. So, so what a bunch of groups did was they said, by our powers combined, we'll withstand the Israelites. Of course, that didn't work out too well for them. One group, however, the Gibeonites said, we're going to go a different tracks. We're not going to wage war with, with weapons. We're going to wage war with deception. And they end up deceiving the Israelites. And through that deception, Joshua enters into a covenant with the Gibeonites. I've got the, the important passage there on the screen for you. Now, what comes of that is a number of things, right? The covenant is three things. One, it placed Israel under a covenantal curse not to harm the Gibeonites. They were to never to harm them, right? They had agreed they would never harm them. And so if they did harm them, Israel would be under the judgment of God. Okay? Secondly, it subjected the Gibeonites to servanthood. So they are types of indentured servants. They, 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 they help build things and then they play a role sort of in the background uh, with that sort of stuff. The third was preserving the Gibeonites as servants in the promised land. They were allotted a piece of land among the Benjaminites. Now, what tribe was Saul from? Benji, that's right. He's from the tribe of Benji. And no wonder then, we may be making some assumptions here, no wonder then the king from the tribe of Benjamin wants to get rid of the people that's taken up his land. And so what does he do? 
I'll just get rid of them. So he seeks to commit genocide. Now, in verse 2, we see that the Gibeonites confirm what God has revealed to David. Saul really did these things. Now, what's, what's amazing here, what stuck out to me was, God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, and he didn't. God did not tell Saul to wipe out the Gibeonites, but he tried to. If only I could think of an application about selective obedience. But I'm having a hard time. Aren't you? Boy, I, just, I wish I could think of one. Now, before we, we move on here, I, I, I think we should pause here. The Gibeonites, I think it's fair to say, have a righteous complaint. Chances are, you and I, we, we have the same pattern where we read the Bible and we know the Israelites are supposed to be the good guys. And so we, we think, okay, I need to be sympathetic to the good guys. The problem is the good guys are bad guys here. But if, if we are consistent with our pro-life view that everyone is made in the image of God, we should be able to say the Gibeonites have a justified complaint and that this act of injustice should not go uh, uh, unheard of and should not, should, should not be easily ignored. And the death of Saul does not solve the problem. Imagine, if you, if you will, that if it were your neighbor who was wiped out, if it was your child, your spouse, your parents wiped out by that evil king, and then when he died, everyone acted like it wasn't that big of a deal. Of course the Gibeonites have a right to complain, and they have a right to say something must be done. So notice what it is we have here. We have a single man, Saul, give the order to wipe out the Gibeonites. But because Saul was never held accountable for what he, what he did and the evil he committed, the oath that he broke, now it goes from being an issue of a person's sin to now it's a corporate sin. This is a political, cultural, and systemic problem we have here because no one seems to want to listen to the voice of the Gibeonites. It took famine for people to realize what Saul did was evil. It took God's revelation for them to cross their mind, you know, maybe we're the baddies. And that's the point of the text. So what does David do? He, he says, we've got to rectify the situation. He goes to the Gibeonites there in verse 3, and he says, what, what must be done? And in verse 4, the Gibeonites start with what will not work this time, buddy. What will not work is um, gold and silver. He says, they say to David, you cannot buy yourself out of this problem. Now, if only I could think of an application to rich America there, right? Think about it. If money could solve the world's problems, we wouldn't have as many problems as we now have. We've been trying to fix raising children and education for years by dumping money on top of it. And then we ignore things like fatherlessness and everything else, wondering why the system's still broken. We've been dumping money to solve addiction problems and everything else, thinking why is it that we keep spending money and the problem seems to be getting worse? Because money doesn't solve these problems. Atonement must solve these problems. Grace must solve these problems. God's love and the work of the Spirit can only then solve these problems, not money. So the Gibeonites make it clear that wealth cannot, nor will it ever, resolve injustice. Injustice requires atonement. And for them, atonement that is a life for life, blood for blood. So, in verse 5 and 6, they announced their solution. We want, since we can't get Saul, we want his sons. Now, some suggest that the sons might have been involved in this act. And I don't know if that's the case or not. We can, I've gone back and forth or not. We can only go with what the text tells us. 
And they say, give us seven sons of Saul. We are going to hang them publicly. And their blood will be the result of this. It will be an act of atonement. Notice the language there. Saul's described as, as the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. That's how they describe Saul. You know, that man. Now, remember what the Bible says about being hanged from a tree. We looked at this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to belabor it. Deuteronomy 21, any man who hangs from a tree is cursed of God. So what is it that that they want? They, They don't just want blood. They want the cursing of God to be laid upon these seven men. Saul had become a curse to the Gibeonites. Now, now these, the sons of Saul must become a curse themselves. And God's judgment is to fall upon them. And through that judgment, the, the, the drought will cease. That's their argument. That's what they want. They understand blood must be shed because blood has been shed. In fact, notice how they describe Saul again. They describe him as the chosen of the Lord. Not only, of course, was Saul chosen by God, he was chosen by Israel. It's a stinging rebuke from the Gibeonites. Is this how the chosen people of God are to act? If only I could think of an application there. We could say the same thing about the average American Christian today. So in verse 7, David must choose who is to be executed. Um, I'm glad I don't have to have that job. And you'll notice there in verse 7, David does not offer Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. We, we've looked at that story back uh, in 2 Samuel. Mephibosheth was handicapped and was saved by David and, and, and shown great kindness to him. Now, I think the reason that the author tells us that is it shows that uh, Mephibosheth was spared. Yes, after all, we read later in the story of David, Mephibosheth is still alive. But also because it shows that David entered to an oath with Mephibosheth and Jonathan. Therefore, David isn't going to break that oath. So who are the seven sons? Well, it is two sons of Ritzbah, that is Saul's concubine. Their names are Armoni and, here we go, Mephibosheth. It's a different Mephibosheth. It's confusing to me too, okay? It's like reading all the Marys and Simons and Simeons and, and everything else in the New Testament, right? Do, d- deal with it, I don't know, all right? So there's two Mephibosheths. One will go to the gallows, the other will be spared. And then there are five sons of Merib. These would be Saul's grandsons. They are sent to the gallows. Verse 9, it is done publicly so that both the Gibeonites and the Israelites would know the consequences of their sins. And you'll notice there in verse 9, this took place at the barley harvest. Now, the barley harvest was uh, a big, big event because it meant the end of, of the harvest season, of course. And now you can say, look how the Lord has blessed us. We have plenty of food for the winter, so on and so forth. But there is no food for the winter's famine. So instead of, 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 of food, they will have to settle for blood. All they have to celebrate at the barley harvest is blood, atonement. And so these seven men suffer for the sins of their father. Perhaps the hardest part of the passage starts in verse 10. And that is when a single mother, Ritzbah, Saul's concubine, She fights and she claws to protect the honor of these deceased boys. Here we see Ritzbah is not merely a concubine. She's more than that. She's a mother. And if her boys are going to be taken from her, she would fight 
to the last breath they're on earth. Remember, remember that the language is anyone who hangs from, from a tree is cursed and she is fighting against that with all that she has. Can, can I prove it to you? Notice the language there in verse 10 of the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. She's trying to protect them from the birds of the air, beasts of the field. That language is important. When I read that uh, a few weeks ago, and we were, I was trying to think about this text, meditating upon it, I thought that text took us back to creation, but it doesn't. This, this language is used in two contexts, for the most part, in the Bible. The first, uh, the first is, it is language depicting the judgment of God. Let me show you in Deuteronomy 28. You're, this is an act of judgment. If you break the covenant law, this is what's going to happen to you. God says, your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air, for the beasts of the air. Here it is. There will be no one to frighten them away. All three of those parts are important. Birds of the air, beasts of the field, no one to frighten them away. Jeremiah says the same thing when he speaks of the coming judgment from, from Babylon. He'll, he'll say, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air, beasts of the earth, and none, no one will be left to frighten them away. You see all three aspects of it. What is it you see in this text? Is she fights, though they may be under the curse of God, they are not under the judgment of God, for she will keep the birds of the air and the beasts of the field from, from devouring them. Why? She alone is left to fight for them. It's a beautiful scene of a mother's love, isn't it? What great courage she is. Can I give you the other context that this language is used? Your boy, Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, the Philistine says, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Now, catch this. We have to wait till next week to get there, Lord willing. The next passage, beginning in verse 15, is the ongoing war against the giants of the Philistines. It's not an accident then. We get the story about seven sons of Saul, who is king during time of Goliath. Seven sons of Saul becoming birds of the air, beasts of the field. And then what you get is uh, the Israelites still warring against the giants. Not, not an accident. The, the, remember, this is a thematic study, not a chronological one. What a mother's love that we have here. And David sees this mother's love. And so he takes the dishonored body of Saul and Jonathan, who weren't buried properly, and he takes the seven sons and he, he, he buries them in family cemetery, giving them the honor they deserve. There was someone there. To defend them. And so we come to the end of the text. And we're confronted with some real uncomfortable realities, aren't we? This is a tough text. One uncomfortable part of this passage is it sounds pagan. Let's be honest. Can you think of anywhere else in the Bible where the answer to sin is to kill someone? <coughs> Not like this. Not like this. This is what we would expect the nations to do. So whenever I read this passage over and over again, I thought, I, I don't like this passage. It doesn't read like anything else I've read in the Bible. It's a difficult text. And I'll tell you why we're really uncomfortable with this text. It is because it takes sin more seriously than you and I do today. Notice what it says about sin. It tells us, along with the rest of the Bible, that sin has a staining effect. By refusing to address it, now all of Israel has become corrupted. Otherwise, Saul's death would have satisfied the Gibeonites. That's not how sin works. Have you ever been grossly wounded by someone and then they just move away and everyone acts like nothing happened? Or they get transferred to another department and it's just like nothing happened? Sane has a staying effect upon the soul, both the victim and the one who's guilty of the sin. 
It shows us that sin distorts, sin corrupts, sin ruins. It brings shame and guilt upon people and communities. It damages people. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the Gibeonites. It's their loved ones who were executed. It was their family who were mauled to death by that evil king. They did nothing wrong but their mere existence in the land. And to ignore this truth about sin results in failing to cure the disease. What we continue to do as Americans and as Westerners is we think we can bypass the problem of sin, throw enough money at it, throw enough politics at it, fix the economy, uh, do this or that, and then that will fix the problem. The Gibeonites are at least correct in saying, no, the problem is sin, and until sin is addressed, there will never be a cure. There will never be cleansing. There will never be healing. We must address the problem of sin. That's why we don't like this passage. I mean, couldn't have David just given them all a nice vacation? That would have fixed it. Maybe they could have filed a civil lawsuit and they all could, be, could, be, could become wealthy. That would have solved it. I know they could have, they could have allowed them to, to elect their own uh, representatives in, 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 in Jerusalem capital, right? That's how we think problems are solved. Education, experience, this, that. No, no, no. The Gibeonites are, as pagan as they are, understand the problem is sin. And until you address sin, there will be no resolution to the problem. Well, that leads. Sin is great. That's very evident there. It's, it's, it's all over this passage. And it is ugly, as sin is. But the good news is grace is greater still. Grace is greater still. My natural inclination when reading through the story of David is to assume he's doing the right thing. I, I trust you. I mean, we, you know, sometimes the text will say this is bad, yes. But as a general rule, I like to think that the greatest king of, of Israel, who was a man after God's own heart, usually does the right thing. And that's the way I naturally read the text. I'm not sure that's going to help us here. Can I give you just, just a few reasons uh, of, of how, or a few things that David does here that are wrong? First of all, David inquired of God regarding the problem, but not the solution. Go back. In verse 1, he goes and he seeks the Lord. Why is there a drought? And God says, it's what Saul did the Gibeonites. But what does David then do? He doesn't finish the prayer. He doesn't go to the priest. He doesn't go to the prophet. He doesn't seek godly counsel. What does he do? Oh, we wounded the Gibeonites. Hey, Gibeonites, what do you think we ought to do? He goes from seeking the Lord for the problem, but he assumes human wisdom as its solution. Only I can think of a good application. It's odd, isn't it? One might wonder how God would have resolved this. Presumably, it would have been through the sacrificial and ritual system already established in the tabernacle next to his palace and the Mosaic law. It has answers there for us. He never seeks out godly wisdom, prophet, priest, and so on and so forth. So he, he violated or he failed to, to seek the, the, the will of God. Secondly, he violated the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy 24, uh, it, it says, um, here we go, uh, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. But that's, that's the opposite of what David does here, right? What does he do? He has the sons to pay for the sins of the fathers. Now, we need to note here, in the Bible, there is the expectation for the people of God to address historic and systemic sins. That is expected. 
At the same time, there is, uh, there is accountability for the individual when they do sin, which means current generations are not responsible to atone for the sins of previous generations unless they themselves are guilty of it. Both are true. What you get in America is it's one or the other. We're accountable for all that's come before us and what the culture is doing. We've got to repent for the culture. On the other end is it's not my problem. I wasn't around when it happened. The Bible doesn't allow us to pick one or the other. So what you have here is David and the Israelites must address this problem within Israel that was started by Saul. But because they never addressed Saul to begin with, this stain is still with them. The wounds are still raw. It must be addressed. At the same time, the text is clear. Saul is the one guilty here. So it's both and. But here David wants to violate the Mosaic law in this regard. Thirdly and quickly, David is an oath breaker. At the end of his reign, Saul asked David to promise something. You can uh, I'll put it up here in 1 Samuel 24. Basically, it was protect my sons. Don't let any harm come to them. And you'll notice how it ends there in verse 22. David swore this to Saul. He swore this to Saul. And in this text, David violates that promise he made to the king. Which means he is just as guilty as Saul in the oath-breaking. Sure, he, shared, he, he spared Mephibosheth, but he is just as guilty here. So what do we do with this? This is a passage of Scripture, as I read it, that correctly identifies the problem, but provides for us an inadequate solution. I think that's the point. We don't come to this text and say, this is how we solve problems. But rather to say, this this isn't working. This isn't going to work at all. And history is full of such examples. Because we really have two options here, right? There is human atonement, then there is godly atonement. And in this passage, and in a way it often works, is it is the difference between revenge and sacrifice. You read this passage and the language of atonement is just jumping off the page, isn't it? You read this like, I know a story about one who died upon a, a tree uh, for sin, sin that he didn't commit. We know that story well, don't we? Rightly so. But do we understand it right? This is a story of revenge. This is a story of contempt. This is a story that is all too human because this is the way we deal with sin today. You hurt my feelings? I'll destroy you. You come out to my family, I'll, I'll whoop up on you, right? We operate through human atonement of revenge and violence and anger and destruction, and, and, and we hold it all within us, malice and greed and bitterness, and we wonder why it doesn't work. Is it really much different what we do to one another, left, right, and everywhere else, than what the Gibeonites do to the to, to the seven sons of Saul? No, it's not that much different. Why? Because we become pagan. We're pagan here. There is a solution to this problem. It isn't by hanging the guilty for the guilty. The answer is found in Christ, by which it isn't revenge that God offers us, but sacrifice. Notice here, David offers seven sons because of the sins of another man. God offers us his only begotten son for all of us are wicked. The guilty cannot satisfy the sins of the guilty. It takes an eternal son of God 
to satisfy an infinite amount of sin of which he is guilty of none of it. Yes, there is the picture of Christ here and let us see it here. Christ is screaming from the page, this will not work. And the day comes when Christ is hung from a tree, an act of bitterness, malice, malice, injustice, rage, revenge, whatever term you want to use. But in taking upon himself the sins of men, the innocent for the guilty, we are then cleansed. We are then set free. We are forgiven, truly forgiven. You see, we can choose revenge or we can choose grace. We can choose violence or we can choose sacrifice. We can choose hate or we can choose love. Sin is great. Grace is greater still. We're already past time, so let me throw out an illustration of nomina notes because you'll get out later this way, right? My favorite book in the whole wide world, other than the Bible, right? Right? You have to say that. You know, that should be assumed, but you have to say that anymore. Preachers say, don't you like the Bible? Um, my favorite book in the whole wide world is, it's over a thousand years old. It's called Beowulf. It's a story of Vikings. So you know there's a lot of blood and violence, right? And what you get in Beowulf is that one generation passes in violence and corruption only to be replaced by another generation of violence and corruption. The king, when he wins the battle, steals all the goat and he gives it out to his Danes. How did he get the goat? He had to kill. He had to destroy. And guess what happens? The people who were killed and destroyed, their family come to destroy him, by which they will take the goat and they will dispense it among everyone. That's the way Vikings work, right? They, they don't create wealth. They steal it. So the story is nothing. It's a cycle of violence with each generation. And then it gets to the end and it says... Now that our king is dead, this other people group are going to come and they're going to come kill our goat or kill us and steal all of our goat. And the reader leaves the story thinking, is this the best that mankind has to offer? Violence? Greed? Is that it? Not much different what we're doing today. But if you read Beowulf historically, what you'll find is there is no sequel because there's a good reason for that. If you place in this historical context, what happens in Beowulf is the cycle of violence ends when missionaries arrive on, on the shores. Where the missionaries come and says the cycle of violence and greed can stop because it all has been nailed to the cross. All this wickedness, all this sin, all this shame, all this, these stains, all this guilt, all this fear, all of this needs to be no more for Christ has been crucified. Christ has come. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Can I prove it to you biblically? What did the Paul write in 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That's, had David sought the Lord, that's what he would have found. So chances are here this morning, you're thinking, well, this is a weird text. I might as well just move on. But I don't want you to miss the main points. Your sin is great. But God's grace is greater still. And there is freedom for you in Christ. Therefore, we no longer need to find simple solutions that never work. Seek our own justice. 
seek our own pride and righteousness. There is an answer found in Christ who gives us the peace of God through the shed blood of Christ who is risen from the dead. Choose his sacrifice over your revenge, over your contempt, over your hate, over your sin, over your burden, over your animosity, over your envy. Choose Christ and in him you'll find cleansing for yourself. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to give us this good news.